arrangement, remember, and they were able to discern that indeed Saul wanted to kill David. And it really needed to be revealed to Jonathan, which is why they, they had the elaborate ruse that they went through with the dinner and all of that. And so this now is David on the run. And um, he, he has already felt under the gun. He really is starting to feel the pressure in this text. And, and you kind of sense it as David bounces around. If you have one of those Bibles that has some maps and charts in it, they'll probably have one uh, uh, that will show David's wanderings because it's really bizarre. And, and it gives rise to what exactly is David thinking at this moment in his life. And, um, and that's why I titled this morning's sermon, The Foolishness of David. I, 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 and I'm using foolishness in, in the more technical sense, not, not he's a fool, um, but more in the, the sense of um, uh, he's, he's lacking good judgment and discernment. He's making decisions just purely out of how he feels and, 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 and what he's thinking, and, and he, he's not really considering the, the big picture. He really is just going from spot to spot to spot, hoping that things are going to pan out for him, I guess. Um, and so that's kind of where we're at in, in the passage. So as we Think of the foolishness of David. We're going to look at it in four points. The first is, the foolishness of David meets God's provision. And, um, and I'll just tell you kind of at the front end, uh, there, there are times when you're preaching and you're looking at passages um, that, to, that you lean more heavily on some folks than on others. And uh, in this particular sermon, I, I spent a lot of time uh, with Ralph Davis um, and, uh, and his commentary on 1 Samuel is, is really wonderful, um, and, and I would encourage you to look at it. But it, um, I'm following some, something of his outline here. So the first part is that um, David, as he's on the run, meets God's provision. Um, he goes to Nob, which apparently is uh, the location where um, the tabernacle currently is set up, and the priest is there. Um, and when he sees David coming and he's alone, the text says he got really nervous, okay? Uh, because this is first highly unusual. He knows who David is. He knows he's, you know, there's, there's something going on. Why in the world is David here at the tabernacle alone? And, um, and so as he, as David arrives, uh, they have a, a brief, um, kind of an interaction and David begins to spin his yarn. Um, Ahimelech asks, why is no one with you? And David answers him and, and begins to tell a tale. And the tale is that the king has charged him with a secret mission. Okay? And he is on this secret mission, so secret that it was just sprung on him at the last minute. And because it was sprung on him at the last minute, he's alone. And he has no food. And on top of having no food, he doesn't even have his sword. Now, if you're a Ahimelech, you're, you're listening to this tale and no doubt thinking to yourself, this just doesn't smell right. This doesn't sound right. But he, he goes along with it, and, and they have the interaction. And, um, and, and David is clearly without. 
he has nothing. And so he asks the priest for some bread. Can you give me five loaves of bread? And the priest responds and says, I don't have any common bread. What I do have is I have the bread of presence or the show bread. Now, this is the bread that would sit just inside the holy place on a table. And it's substantial. Um, the estimates are that each loaf of this bread would weigh approximately five and a half pounds. Okay? So th- this is some serious bread. Um, and there would have been 12 loaves of it on the table stacked. So 12 times 5.5. I'm not really good at math, but I'm guessing upwards of 60 plus pounds worth of bread. Okay? Um, and, and the priest offers this bread. Now, he's breaking the rules. Okay? Because what typically would happen is on the, on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath, uh, they would have baked the new bread and the hot loaves would, they would take into the holy place and they would put them on the table, the priest would. And then he would remove the other bread and they would take it and they would eat it. Okay? And they would consume all of it in a holy place. They themselves set aside for a holy purpose would then take the bread and eat the bread, the priest would. This guy must, you know, I don't know. I don't know how you eat 60 pounds of bread, but that's what they were supposed to do. In this instance, that, that bread which had been removed had not yet been consumed And so he offers that bread to David. Um, And David takes the bread, apparently. At the same time as this is happening, he inquires about a sword. In this picture, um, you just have to, as we already kind of read in the psalm, you have to begin to understand This is a really critical point in the life of Israel and in David's life. He is is fleeing for his very life. His existence is is in danger. In fact, in the text, um, we get a little hint of of just, just how hotly pursued he is because there's one verse that, that mentions uh, Doeg the Edomite. Do you remember the verse? And, and Doeg the Edomite is Saul's chief herdsman who just happens to have been delayed there at Nog and, oh, by the way, overhears the conversation. He will show up again in the story in a, in a week. And, and he will go back to Saul and he will tattle on the priest. And Saul will encounter and and engage the priest and i don't want to get too far ahead but bad things happen really bad things and that's that is the the tension that is in the text david fearing for his life has left everything he has nothing this is god's anointed future king and he's completely out on his own and so he's here in nog he asks for the bread. He gets the bread. And, and what we're seeing is that God provided for him in, in the simplest of ways and, and in ways that, that were enough 
to keep him going. And he recognizes it. He, he understands it, which is why he goes back, or at some point in this journey, he begins to pen these psalms. And if you read each of the psalms that David pens during this period, it's the bread that the priest gave him and the sword that he gave him. But what does David say? David says, my God is my protector. He is the one that rescued me. Well, technically, it was the priest who gave him the bread. But see, even in that bread, there's a picture for us. Because the bread that went before the Lord was an offering from the people to God. And at the same time, the picture was that God provides for his people. You see, the pagans had a practice. Okay, They would bake 260 loaves of bread, and they did it every single day. And they would go into their temples, and they would present their bread to their God, and they would close a curtain and open a curtain, and the bread would still be there, but it was believed that he had eaten it. Okay, And so then they would take the bread, and, uh, and they would dispose of it. That's not what happens in, in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, the priest bakes the bread, presents it to God, and then he consumes it at the very end. He eats it on behalf of the people of Israel. He is their, he, the priest is the representative of God's people. And so he feeds on the bread because he is for the people. He represents the people. And, and it's a picture of God providing for all of Israel. And in this instance, he's providing for all of Israel by providing for David. And if you ever have asked the question, why was it okay for David and the priest to break the rules? That's why. Right? Because the bread was for the people. Ultimately, that, that was what it was for. Um, the Sabbath is for you and I, right? Um, which is why we're able to do works of ministry on it and, and we're able to, to uh, serve the Lord on it. Um, Jesus actually talks about David eating the bread at the end of Mark chapter 2. And he uses it as, as an illustration of the fact that all of those things, all of the rituals, the, the showbread, all of it ultimately is for God's people. And in this case, it was used for David and for his sustenance. Here here would just be a little application for you. The little things in your life, are they still happening? Did you eat this morning? My guess is you're going to leave here. You're probably going to go eat some greasy hamburger on the lake somewhere. Okay? Or this evening, some of you are going to crack open a cold one, all right, while you're out there boating. Um, All of these good things in in your life, right, do do you ever stop and ponder and and think? They just keep happening. Oftentimes we forget about the mundane nature of the way that God provides for us. Listen, if you've traveled around the world at all, it's not the case that everyone has the abundance that you and I do. Are you thankful for that? Are you reminded in that abundance that, that God has lavished that on you? Because of where you were born? 
because of who your parents were, because of amazing skills and talents and abilities you have, all of which you had nothing to do with. None of you chose the place of your birth. It's easy to overlook the little things. David didn't. Because on the run, on the go, the little things really mattered. Here's the second thing. In David's foolishness, he meets God's protection. Verse 10. Verse 10 tells us that after the incident, the situation with the priest, David leaves. He fled from Saul and he went to Gath. Big deal? Not a big deal. Pretty big deal. Gath just so happens to have been the hometown of a guy you heard about a couple chapters ago named Goliath. See, this is where you start getting the, what in the world is David thinking? So he leaves the priest at Nob, and he goes to Gath, which is the Philistine stronghold, which was Goliath's hometown. And he walks into town with Goliath's sword. Perhaps hoping what? That they don't recognize him? That doesn't happen. Because right out of the gate, what do they say? They say, hold on a second. Isn't that David? Isn't that the one they've been singing that ditty about on the radio? Right? Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. They know the song, they know who he is, and they pick up on it. And they're scratching their heads, right? They're like, what is this guy doing? Why is he here? And David, it says, verse 12, took those words to heart. And he was very afraid of the king of Gath. And so what does he do? He pretends to be crazy. And he goes and he scratches the door, the, 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 the doorposts, okay? And uh, he, he puts markings of some sort in the do- doorposts. And he, and he grovels around and he lets the slobber all down into his beard, okay? And, and he pretends that he's a crazy person. And if you don't laugh, if you didn't chuckle at the king's last words, you're... you're You're just not getting the story. Look at this man. He is insane. Why did you bring him to me? Verse 15. Am I short of crazy people that you had to bring this guy to me? The Bible often has a a sense of humor, and the recounting of that is somewhat humorous. David did such a good job with his acting that they really believed he had lost his marbles. Now, if you're reading that and you're thinking to yourself, that was ingenious, right? So David gets in, he realizes they recognize him, so he goes into his acting skills, which apparently were substantial. And he is able to survive the situation. Now, remember... I read for you the psalm. So how long, you see how compressed the story is. Does the story sound that compressed when you read 
Psalm 54? No. They're hotly pursuing him. Their breath is hot after him. There's a lot going on, okay? So if, if you understand that, then you understand the significance. This, this isn't probably a one-episode sort of a deal that David had. I mean, this isn't like 15 minutes of... This is days, perhaps, of David playing the part of the crazy person. And he gets off. And you're tempted to say, wow, how clever... How smart. But you know what? Don't do that. David didn't do that. David, in the psalm, gives praise to God. For what? For his protection. You see, because David was a fool. David went to Gath, probably, scholars think, probably hoping that he could sign on in Gath as a mercenary until things blew over with Saul. That's probably what David's intention was. He was going to go there and sign up to be a mercenary for the Philistines. This would have been common practice. But when he got there, unfortunately, his reputation had already gotten there. And so he wasn't able to do that, so he had to do something else. But again, you see, what is he, he's making decisions because he's, he, he, in another weird sort of a way, he's out of his mind at this point. In fear, he doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know what to do. And so he ends up there, and it's only by God's protection that he survives. Let's move to the next one. Because there are four of these essential provisions that God provides. And this one is God's providence. David, in his foolishness, meets God's providence. And we see this in the first four verses of chapter 22. So, finally, David gets away from Gath. He flees to the cave of Adullam, okay? So, the, the cave of Adullam is in the western foothills, and it's, you have to kind of get out of your head because when you look at it and you find out there's 400 people in this cave, that's pretty tight quarters. Um, it's a series of caves, okay? A, kind of a vast hideout for everybody who's wanted by the IRS and has trouble at home. All of those people end up at the cave of Adullam. And so David gets there with this really great band of folks. And there, oh, by the way, some of his family have gone there because they are now living in fear, right? If Saul wants to kill David, perhaps he'll kill Jesse and, and his wife. And so they've all made their way to this sort of rescue, and it's the cave of Adullam. And, um, and David there begins to think about mom and dad. And so he gathers up his folks and he takes them to Moab. And he goes to the king of Moab and he says, verse 3 of chapter 22, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? Now, the text doesn't give us a whole lot, but here's what you have to understand. The Moabites at this point are not friendly people. They are not friends of Israel. They're enemies. And so, again, just we've gone to Nob. Then we went to Gath, hometown of world champion Goliath. Then we went to the cave of Adullam. Doesn't sound like a pleasant place. And now we've gone all the way back over to the eastern side 
to the Moabites. And he's gone to the king of the Moabites and he says to them, Hey, would you let my folks take refuge here? This is the biggest head scratcher imaginable. Unless you know the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is that David's great-great-grandmother, a woman that you and I know as Ruth, just happens to be a Moabitess. And so probably the text doesn't tell us, but David got there, he met with the king, and the king's thinking, wow, this is juicy. I've got the future king of Israel standing before me. I I think we can probably just go ahead and whack this guy and be done with it. And in the middle of that, David says, oh, by the way, king, my great-great-grandmother is a Moabitess. Who knew? That's his secret ticket. Now, the text doesn't tell us that. We have to sort of connect those dots. But if you go to the end of Ruth, chapter 4, you'll see that the author writes into the story how Ruth becomes David's great-great-grandmother. And you say to yourself, okay, and? And all those years earlier, a hundred or so, God, could He have been putting in place a plan to take care of David And David's parents? You tell me. God's providence or just a coincidence? We call that God's providential care. And if you look back over your life, you probably see it in in some of the most unexpected places. One One of the stories that I like to tell in my own life is the story of my mother coming coming to know Jesus. She was a young mom. She had me running around between her legs, um, and she was pulling her hair out, okay? Um, I, I was ADD. Back then, we called it hyperactivity, all right? I was a hyperactive child. And, um, and so my mom, pulling her hair out, gets an invitation from our next-door neighbor to come over and sit on the porch. And so she started doing that. And that lady shared the Lord with my mom. Her name was Martha Lovelady. And my mom came to know Jesus on her porch at Maxwell Air Force Base in roughly 1976. And right after that, started taking me and my sister and my brother to church. And we started going to church, and she was probably dragging my dad to church as well. And a couple of years later, he came to know the Lord. And I call these kind of my pre-evangelism days, right? Because they, they now had me in church, and I was going to church. And I walked the aisle like, I don't know, four, five hundred times. I mean, if there was an altar call, you better believe little Sammy was down there because I, I knew my sin. It was always before me. Um, I don't, I don't think I was converted, but the thing was, I was hearing the word. I, I was in kind of, you know, God was doing something. And it wasn't until years later, after I came to faith and, and I went off to seminary, and I, I went to Mountain Home Air Force Base as a chaplain. And the Lord gives you these glimpses sometimes, these little pictures. And I didn't know any of the story of my mom. 
and um, I'm a PCA pastor at this point, and we go to General Assembly, and at GA, at, at our General Assembly, which is the big gathering of all of our pastors and churches and everything once a year, I'm looking at the board kind of right there by the sign-in, and, and they have the last letter of everybody's name, and, and if somebody wants to get a hold, this is, these are the old days, okay? They would, like, tack a note up there, and so there was a note for me under the S's, and so I pulled it off, and I open it up, and it says, Sam, this is Martha Lovelady. If you get this, I would love to meet you while you're here at GA. And so I get to sit down with Martha Lovelady, who tells me the rest of her story. The rest of her story was she came to know the Lord at Mountain Home Air Force Base. My first assignment as an Air Force chaplain. And I was also the Protestant Women of the Church chaplain, which was the ministry that she came to know the Lord in. Now, big deal, little coincidence. I just call it the providence of God that he had to send, happened to send me all the way back where it happened for Martha Lovelady, who shared the Lord with my mom, subsequently my dad, and had a profound impact upon the rest of my life. Sometimes God lets you see those, right? Look at your life. Think about those coincidences that just seem to happen. And know that His plan is sure and certain. Sometimes He lets you see those little pieces. Here's the last final part. David, David has known God's... Um, protection in his life. He's known as provision. He's now experienced God's providence in his life. And the next thing is he encounters God's prophet. Verse 5. This guy rises up out of nowhere and he comes and he meets David. His name is Gad. And he just tells David a very simple message. Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. And so David departed and he went into the forest of Hereth. Now, you could read that and just very quickly slide right past it. Except if you think about it, it's a really big deal. Because we know that Saul is not getting any of that. Chapter 16, verse 14 tells us that Saul, that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him, had left him. And so God isn't communicating to Saul, but he is communicating to David. And that's just a really important part of the whole puzzle, right? David has the word of the Lord. We would say it this way. He has eyes to see and ears to hear the good news, okay? And God sends to him a prophet to give him that good news. Because in that day, he doesn't have a Bible. And so he, God would often use the prophets, to speak to his people. You and I today don't normally have it by way of a prophet because we have it by way of the Word. That's why we have the, that's why we have the Bible, okay? We have the prophets and the apostles' words. We have God's Word to us. Um, Peter says that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. And we have it right there. So we don't have to go, we, we don't have to find a word, look for a word, listen for a word. 
We have the Word. And that was really critical for David. Ravi Zacharias tells a story. I'm going to close with this. Thinking about the importance of the Word, how valuable it is to our lives, how sometimes it's just the right message. But he tells a story of, um, of, of a young of a man who was an interpreter for um, U.S. Uh, forces in Vietnam. And his name is Hein Pham. My Vietnamese isn't very good, okay? Um, but he was described by Ravi as, a, as an energetic young Christian. And he helped Ravi one time when he was there in 1971. He did translation work for him as they traveled around the country. Ravi leaves the country four or so years later. Vietnam completely falls. The communists take over. And that young interpreter was captured. And he was in and out of, of, uh, of camps, of prison camps. And he went through all sorts of uh, communist propaganda. Everything that he had while he was in camp was given to him in French or Vietnamese. He was not able and had no access to anything written in English. And he tells a story. He says maybe um, as he was listening to all of the Marks and, and Ingalls and all of that, he thought to himself, maybe it was all a lie. Maybe God has abandoned me here. Maybe he will not come to rescue me. Maybe God actually doesn't exist. And he said these were the thoughts that he was having, and he finally got to the point where one evening he had determined that when he woke the next day, he wouldn't pray anymore, and he wouldn't think about his faith anymore. He had completely given up. And here's the way it's written. The next morning, he was assigned the dreaded chore of cleaning the prison latrines. And as he cleaned out a tin can overflowing with toilet paper, his eye caught what seemed to be English printed on one piece of paper. He hurriedly, you get the picture, right? He grabbed it, washed it off, and after his roommates had retired that night, he retrieved the paper. And he read the words, Romans chapter 8. Trembling, he began to read. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor anything in the present or future, on and on. And he said he wept. He knew his Bible. He knew that there was not a more relevant passage for one on the verge of surrender. And he cried out to God asking forgiveness. This was to have been the first day that he would not pray. Evidently, God had other plans. As it were, there was an official in the camp who had been using a Bible as toilet paper. So Hine asked the commander if he could clean the latrines regularly. Each day he picked up a portion of Scripture, cleaned it off, and added it to his collection of nightly reading. It's a powerful, powerful story of how God provided for a man in the midst 
of a prison internment in the most unlikeliest of ways. You and I have the Word readily available to us. I hope I hope we are all able to read it, take it to heart, to let it seep deep into our hearts, and that we treasure it the way that Hine did, finding it in the latrine. Let me pray for us. Father, in the midst of David's foolishness, as you often do for your children, You rose to the occasion. And you met him where he was. You provided for his daily needs. You went the extra mile in his protection. You extended to him a glimpse of your providence. And you continued to sustain him by your word. Father, I pray that we will have an encounter with each of those in our lives as we 